of the cause of freedom is every day. In all our long history, we have never seen a greater day than this. This was indeed a deadly moment in our life. And if it had not been for the loyalty and friendship of Northern Ireland, we should have come to, we should have been forced to come to close quarters with Mr. De Valera or perish forever from the earth. Winston Churchill on VE Day 1945. Even on this perhaps the greatest day of triumph and exultation in his career, Churchill could not escape from an old, complex preoccupation with Ireland and the people of Ireland, North and South. His earliest memories were of Ireland. Born on the 30th of November, 1874, he was brought to Ireland by his parents as a small child in 1876, when his grandfather, the Duke of Marlborough, was appointed Lord Lieutenant. His own father, Lord Randolph Churchill, served as a non-paid secretary to the Viceroy. It was all very much a family affair in the grand tradition. This kind of background is important to our understanding, I think, of Churchill. The British Empire, even when in decline, remained always a reality, a positive force for him. His view of Ireland had about it too a patronising, a possessive quality, which could at times lead him to wrong conclusions about Ireland and the Irish. We in this country probably tend to see Winston Churchill as a great warlord, as the one-time advocate of liberal home rule who came in due course to pursue a policy in 1921 and 1922 which hastened on the Irish Civil War. His colourful praise of the quality of Ulster, Unionist Ulster from the 1920s onwards his abandonment of the Liberal Party for the Conservatives, and his persistent attacks on Irish neutrality during the Second World War are all factors which helped to complete a picture of hardening conservatism. But despite his obvious tendency to see Irish problems in terms of the immediate needs of Britain and her empire, there was nevertheless that persistent interest in Ireland associated with an almost romantic view of Irish courage and character, which was to persist throughout a long lifetime. That association with Ireland began in a house in the Phoenix Park in the year 1876. We lived in a house called the Little Lodge, about a stone's throw from the Viceregal. I remember my grandfather, the Viceroy, unveiling the Lord Gough statue in 1878. This, I think, is my first coherent memory. My nurse, Mrs Everest, was nervous about Fenians. I gathered these were wicked people, and there was no end to what they would do if they had their way. On one occasion, when I was out riding on my donkey, we thought we saw a long, dark procession of Fenians approaching. I am sure now it must have been the rifle brigade out for a route march, 
but we were all very much alarmed, particularly the donkey, who expressed his anxiety by kicking. I was thrown off and had concussion of the brain. This was my first introduction to Irish politics. In the Phoenix Park, there was a great round clump of trees with a house inside it. In this house, there lived a personage styled the, the Chief Secretary or the, the Under Secretary, I'm not clear which. But at any rate, from the house, there came a man called Mr. Burke. He gave me a drum. Two years afterwards, when we were back in England, they told me he had been murdered by the Fenians in the same Phoenix Park we used to walk about in every day. Everyone round me seemed much upset about it, and I thought how lucky it was the Fenians had not got me when I fell off the donkey. Family tradition would have made Winston Churchill a Tory. His father, Lord Randolph, had coined the phrase, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right and he had emerged as one of the most persistent opponents of Gladstone's plans for Irish home rule. Indeed, it may fairly be said that Lord Randolph did more than most men to give a new political weight to the Orange Order and to exploit in political terms the fears of the Protestants of Ulster. Playing the Orange card brought the Orange connection into close alliance with the British Conservatives. A new dimension was being given to parliamentary politics, the hint of partition was there. Winston Churchill first entered Parliament as a Conservative member in the year 1900. But on an issue, on issues unconnected to Ireland, he quitted the Conservative ranks a few years later and joined the Liberal Party. He once confessed that it is a lamentable thing to leave the party you have been brought up in from a child. And his abandonment of the Tories earned him much criticism among his one-time political friends. This shift to the Liberals helped to bring out, of course, an aspect of Churchill which can easily be forgotten. His concern about moderate social and political reform, despite all his preoccupations with empire. It was not so surprising, then, that when the Parliament Act of 1911 broke the power of the House of Lords to veto measures like the Irish Home Rule Bill, that the Liberals, including Churchill, urged on by their Irish nationalists, allies in Parliament who held the balance of power, should have spoken out with increasing ardour in favour of Home Rule. Irish issues had again become central in political debate from 1912 onwards. Home Rule brought Winston Churchill back to Ireland in February 1912. By that time he had become First Lord of the Admiralty in the Asquith government and he was invited by the Ulster Liberal Association to speak at a Home Rule rally in Belfast along with John Redmond and Joe Devlin. This daring advance into the Orange stronghold, it was hoped, would demonstrate the firm resolution of British and Irish supporters of Home Rule in the face of Edward Carson's threats. Refused the use of the Ulster Hall, the organisers had to hold the meeting in the more congenial atmosphere of Celtic Park. Churchill, the Home Ruler, had come to the city where his father, Lord Randolph, 
had been once hailed as the champion of Ulster Protestant rights. It was a potentially dangerous situation. The occasion was a momentous one, and the authorities had concentrated a force of some 5,000 military and over 1,000 police in the city as a precautionary measure against any of that rioting for which the capital of Ulster has been noted on more than one occasion in history. But all was peace, that is to say comparative peace. No head was smashed, no bones broken, there was no rioting. True, Mr Churchill was booed and groaned at vigorously on landing at Larn and he was also yelled at on leaving his hotel in Belfast. An angry crowd tried to rush his motor car, but the police saved the occupants from personal violence. No doubt warned by the threatening attitude of the Orange supporters, Winston Churchill and his wife, instead of returning to their hotel, quietly left for Larne and the safety of the ship for home, by a circuitous route to the nationalist areas. The Unionist triumphed that he had left like a thief in the night. And indeed the Belfast visit, though dramatic and much publicised, did nothing to aid the Home Rule cause. Orange pressure against Home Rule mounted. The Ulster Volunteers, the Solemn League and Covenant, the threat of a provisional government, all these were indications of how Protestant opinion was being mobilised and it had the backing of powerful influences in the Conservative Party, and even in British military circles, as the so-called Curra Mutiny was to testify. All these conflicting passions are reflected in Churchill's speeches of the time. He was one of the most vocal and persuasive of the Liberal champions of Home Rule. But into his speeches crept something which was to grow, namely the conviction in Liberal circles that some at least of the Ulster counties, as a compromise, should be allowed to opt out of an Irish Parliament, if only for a limited number of years. On the 9th of March, the Prime Minister made his offer to the opposition of the exclusion of the Ulster counties by majorities for a six-year period. That offer made it perfectly clear that there must be two general elections before any Ulster county could be compelled to come within the ambit of a Home Rule Parliament. After that offer had been made, it is quite clear that it was not the Ulster question which lay between us, but much wider and much larger and much graver issues. It was clear that it was no longer in the cause of Ulster's liberties, civil and religious, that these dangers were to be incurred by the opposition and that these tests were to be placed before the country. It was because Ulster, no longer concerned with her own affairs, was seeking to bar the way to the whole of the rest of Ireland and was seeking to influence the destinies of British politics. But... Throughout the bitter conflict about the future of Ireland, north and south, Churchill was apt to recur, perhaps as a gesture, perhaps as something more, to the hoped-for ideal of Irish unity based on mutual confidence. The day would also come when, after a few years of successful administration by an Irish parliament on College Green, 
dealing with the affairs of three parts of Ireland. The fourth part of her own free will would come in and associate herself with you. The Home Rule controversy and the risk of something like a civil war in Ireland were, for the moment, put one side with the outbreak of the First World War in August 1914. Churchill at the Admiralty had more to demand his attention than the future of Tyrone and Fermanagh. Redmond pledged his home rulers to the Allied cause and Carson and the Ulster Unionists asserted their allegiance to the Crown. Though the third Home Rule Bill had been passed, it would not be implemented until the war had ended. This was the government's decision. But when Home Rule became law, it was now obvious that part of Ulster would remain outside its scope. Partition, however muted, had been born. The Great War was to open the way for the rising of Easter Week 1916 and the tragic happenings in Dublin, culminating in the executions of the leaders. Churchill was unhappy about the handling of the Republican challenge in Ireland, but in 1916 he was no longer in public office. Ousted from any position of effective power when the Conservatives joined the wartime coalition government, he had resigned and for a time even served as a soldier at the front in France. But he was to write about 1916 and the changes that followed in Irish nationalist sympathies. Old misunderstandings and imperfect sympathies resumed their sway as the war ploughed heavily onwards and its excitements evaporated. The forces of hate in Ireland began to regain their control of the national mind, and with them the desire of youth to dare and suffer, but for something else. There followed the tragedy of Easter week, 1916, the attempted German assistance, the mad revolt, the swift repression, the executions, few but corroding. Well was it said, the grass soon grows over a battlefield, but never over a scaffold. The position of the Irish Parliamentary Party was fatally undermined. The keys of Ireland passed into the keeping of those to whom hatred of England was the dominant and almost the only interest. By 1917, Churchill was back from the political wilderness and in government. But it was not really until 1920-21, as a member of the Lloyd George administration, that his influence on Irish affairs again became of any particular significance. He strongly supported the Government of Ireland Act 1920, which would have set up two Home Rule Parliaments, one for Northern Ireland and one for Southern Ireland, within, of course, the constitutional structure of the United Kingdom. The acceptance, however, reluctantly of the Government of Ireland Act by the Ulster Unionists was for Churchill the promise of a new era in Ireland. His optimism was excessive. From that moment, the position of Ulster became unassailable. It could never again be said that Ulster Protestants barred the aspirations of their southern fellow countrymen. Every argument of self-determination ranged itself henceforward upon their side. They were masters in their own house, 
and small though it might be, it was morally and logically founded upon a rock. The Act of 1920 ended forever this phase of the Irish problem. The Act of 1920 did not end forever this phase of the Irish problem. Indeed, so far as the greater part of the country was concerned, the 1920 Act remained a dead letter. However imaginative Lloyd George's solution might have been in, say, 1914 terms with its Council of Ireland, events had outrun a Home Rule settlement. The reorganisation of the Sinn Féin movement and the Irish volunteers in 1917 and the triumph of Sinn Féin in the 1918 elections were signs of a new time in Ireland. The Republican Dáil Éireann was yet another. The age of Redmond's Home Rule Party had finally passed. The Anglo-Irish War further emphasised the strength of the new radicalism in the South. But in the North, against a background of sectarian violence, the Government of Ireland Act was accepted, and soon the full reality of partition would be seen. The truce of the summer of 1921 in the Anglo-Irish conflict opened the way for negotiations between the Republicans in arms and the British Government. The result was the Anglo-Irish Agreement of December 1921, the Treaty, an agreement which sharply divided the ranks of the Sinn Féin movement. The story of those London negotiations is a tangled and controversial one, but of the highest importance for the whole shaping of modern Ireland, for the history of the Free State and of the tragic Civil War. Churchill had his part, and it was an increasingly significant one, in the Anglo-Irish affairs of 1921-22. Lord Longford, author of Peace by Ordeal, assesses Churchill's role. He was number four in the British team. There was Lloyd George, Austin Chamberlain, Birkenhead and, and Churchill. And he was definitely the fourth. If he hadn't been there, I don't think the course of the negotiations or the result would have been any different. But what was, of course, very important was that he was one of the treaty signatories because he then felt a tremendous um, sense of... Uh, partnership, really, with the Irishmen who had signed this treaty under duress, and they got into difficulties. Uh, He then failed to understand those difficulties, and I think the fact that he'd been so much involved in the treaty was, in a way, unfortunate, because it led him to adopt a very bullying attitude towards uh, Collins, for example. It is often suggested that great pressures were brought to bear by the British on Griffith, Collins, and the other members of the Irish delegation, and that Churchill's influence was considerable. Professor Desmond Williams. It is interesting that Churchill himself does raise this question, but he says the the guiding influence on Collins during the negotiations was Smith. He doesn't claim that for himself. And in fact, it's only after the treaty is signed that Churchill undertakes full responsibility for the settlement of the outstanding questions concerning the treaty. It's only after 1900, after December 1921, that he, when he ceases to be Secretary of State for War, that he takes over the Irish question. Now, it is true that he came to have an admiration for Collins, but he talks about Collins in his book, The Aftermath, as a man who touched the springs of terrible deeds. He suggests that Collins reformed, whereas his real admiration, as expressed in that work, 
is more for Griffith and indeed most of all for William Cosgrave. I, he certainly played a role in the whole treaty negotiations, but I think the drinking bouts that allegedly went on on that occasion would have been more, would have involved much more Birkenhead, Galloper, Smith than Churchill. At a later stage, Churchill would have come into the picture, and of course, he played a central part in the days leading up to the outbreak of the Civil War. But if Churchill and his colleagues sought to achieve an influence over the Irish leaders, Michael Collins certainly had no illusions about Churchill, as a private record made by him shows. Churchill would sacrifice all for political gain. Studies, I imagine, the detail carefully. Thinks about his constituents' effects of so-and-so on them. Inclined to be bombastic. Full of ex-officer jingo or similar outlook. Don't actually trust him. Trust him or not, the pace of events in 1921-22 were to draw the two sets of signatories to the treaty ever closer together. We had become allies and associates in a common cause. The cause of the Irish Treaty and of peace between two races and two islands. It was nearly three o'clock in the morning before we separated, but the agreement was signed by all. As the Irishmen rose to leave, the British ministers, upon a strong impulse, walked round and for the first time shook hands. But the relations between the British government and the provisional government in Dublin were far from easy in the opening months of 1922. Old suspicions were there. The relations between the treaty supporters and their Republican opponents remained complicated. Sympathies could be divided, and in the North, the Catholic population was being exposed to growing pressures and terror. In Britain, opinion was divided on a treaty which would give the Irish Free State a measure of independence something like that enjoyed by Canada. Lloyd George's coalition was fighting for survival. The success of its Irish policy was crucial. Churchill, despite the gloomy prospects, could cling to his almost facile optimism about a solution to the Irish problem in 1921-22. Ulster must have her British comfort and protection. Ireland must have her treaty, her election and her constitution. There will be other and better opportunities of dealing with the difficult boundary question. For generations we have been floundering in the Irish bog. But at last we think that in this treaty we have set our feet upon a pathway which has already become a causeway rather narrow but firm and far-reaching. But with a characteristic change of mood, Churchill could write to Alfred Cope, one of his confidential representatives in Ireland, in March 1922. The position in Cork seems as bad as ever, and it is reported that a notorious man who had been captured has now escaped. Do you think there is any fighting quality in the free state government? 
Will anybody die for it or kill for it? Let me know your view, not your wish. The answer to that question was to be a tragic yes. Churchill, now colonial secretary and the minister primarily responsible for relations with Dublin, clearly feared that the negotiations for some kind of a settlement between the two rival sections of Sinn Féin in the spring of 1922 could easily open the way to an Irish Republic and disaster, as he saw it, for the Empire and the Coalition Government. He may well have suspected Collins's intentions, and the presence of armed anti-treaty IRA men, even in Dublin, left him very uneasy. In turn, the desperate plight of many nationalists in the North angered Collins. To lessen the tensions, Churchill worked to bring Collins and Craig, now the Northern Premier, together. The prize of Irish unity was hinted at again. The interest of your opponents North and South, Orange and Green, is to provoke the worst state of feeling between the two parts of Ireland. And on both sides, the wreckers dread any approach to the idea of a united Ireland as the one fatal final blow at their destructive schemes. I know Craig means to play fair and straight with you, and I do not think you will find such another man in the whole of the North. But nothing much resulted from these efforts, and Churchill's alarm at a Republican recovery grew. He made his position plain to the House of Commons in May 1922, when he stressed that the government would not in any circumstances agree to deviate from the treaty, and he warned too that the setting up of a republic would be followed by a British occupation of Dublin. Collins, as early as February 1922, had few illusions about the dangers inherent in a complex political and military situation. I know the English can go to war with us and will go to war with us, and are at this moment watching an opportunity to go to war with us. From Churchill's point of view, there were, however, one or two encouraging signs. The feared pact between the rival sections of Sinn Féin to put forward a common panel of candidates for the June elections broke down, and Churchill's pressure on Collins, among other factors, probably contributed to this situation. The elections, too, resulted in a majority for the pro-treaty party. But any satisfaction Churchill may have derived from this was soon overshadowed by the assassination in London of Sir Henry Wilson, who was so closely identified with an aggressive unionism in Northern Ireland. With Republicans in occupation of the four courts in Dublin, the British government was now thoroughly alarmed and the pressure on the provisional government to act against the Republicans was intense. Churchill again warned in the Commons on the 26th of June. The presence in Dublin of a band of men styling themselves the headquarters of the Republican executive is a gross breach and defiance of the treaty. If it does not come to an end, then it is my duty to say, on behalf of His Majesty's government, that we shall regard the treaty as having been formally violated, and we shall take no steps to carry out 
or legalize its further stages, and that we shall resume full liberty of action in any direction that may seem proper, and to any extent that may be necessary to safeguard the interests and the rights that are entrusted to our care. The message was clear. Either the provisional government would act against the entrenched Republicans, or the British would move on their own initiative, treaty or no treaty, and send in their own troops. The Irish government decided to act. On the 28th of June 1922, the shelling of the four courts began, and any hope of a reconciliation between the two sections of Sinn Féin we now know had ended. For Rory O'Connor in the four courts, there could be no doubt who was responsible. The enemy is the old enemy, England. Mr Churchill cracked the whip in his speech when he ordered the provisional government to attack the forecourts. But how correct was this conclusion? How much did Churchill's influence count at this critical time? Well, I know in Ireland, or at any rate in many well-informed Irish circles, it's always thought so, and I don't think one can uh, quite... um, acquit him of that responsibility. On the other hand, that situation couldn't go on indefinitely. One could, uh, in a sense, understand Churchill's point of view. He was being pressed very hard by the Tories. He wasn't a Tory at that time. And Churchill himself could hardly have survived in British politics if he hadn't taken some fairly extreme steps. But what the steps taken were taken by the British cabinet. He was a very strong force in it. Uh, But I think the Civil War would have broken out anyhow. Uh, the timing of it, Churchill played a particular part in it. Um, but I, there is no question of Collins having yielded or Griffith having yielded to an ultimatum. And de Valera says, uh, on, has said on several occasions that the Irish government, in its response to pressures from the British government in the week before the outbreak of the Civil War, particularly after June 22nd when Sir Henry Wilson was murdered. Uh, De Valera says that the attitude of the Irish government was fit and proper. The Civil War would have come. Churchill happened to be the, the man who influenced it on the British side and who gave full support to the free state uh, on that occasion. The Civil War ran its course and Churchill recalled, sadly, the loss of men like Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins. But the Irish Free State had been established, and the border had about it an air of permanency. Although the border issue, surprisingly, had not figured very largely in the treaty debates of 1922 and Dáil by the mid-1920s it seemed to men in Irish government circles that the time had nonetheless come for the promised revision. The result was to be no source of joy to Irish nationalists. And in the negotiations, Churchill, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, played his part, a hard one in financial terms, some might think, for Ireland. The initiative came from the then Irish government. uh, The Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1925 was one that certainly suited British interests very, very much. But I stress the, uh, the initiative for it came from Cosgrave, and the Irish government and the Free State government of the time were frightened as regards the outcome 
of the boundary or commission. I don't think Churchill had anything to do with the terms of, of the boundary commission. Thereafter, for more than a decade, Churchill virtually disappears as a factor in Anglo-Irish relations. And indeed, in terms of British politics, the decade before the Second World War was to be one of his longest periods in the political wilderness. Rejected by the makers of ministries, his voice was raised in alarm at the Statute of Westminster of 1931, a measure which recognised the virtual sovereign independence of the Commonwealth dominions. He feared for the Empire, he feared that Ireland might escape from the restrictions of the treaty and even quit the Commonwealth. In this, his apprehensions were ultimately to be justified. Ireland, he somehow felt, was not a dominion like the rest. It needed, in British and Irish interests, a closer, cosy relation with Great Britain. He looked back to home rule with some sadness. In wider terms, he feared the rise of Hitler's Germany, more acutely, perhaps, than many of his contemporaries in the Conservative Party. And as a former First Lord of the Admiralty, he viewed with alarm the outcome of the negotiations between Mr de Valera as the head of the Irish government and the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain in 1938. The agreement of April of that year opened the way not merely for the end of the economic war, but for the abrogation of those articles of the treaty which had given to the British naval and military rights in Ireland. He bemoaned the loss of the ports as a blow to British security. Personally, I remained convinced that the gratuitous surrender of our rights to use the Irish ports in war was a major injury to British national life and safety. A more feckless act can hardly be imagined, and at such a time. Did all this mean that his attitude to Ireland and Irish aspirations were hardening at this period? Patrick Cosgrave, the author of a new study of Churchill and the Second World War. I don't think he changed fundamentally in his attitude to Ireland, which, rather like his attitude to France, was basically a personally sentimental one. I think the important change was that in the course of 1938 and 39, and even more so after he joined the Chamberlain government in, 19, in, in uh, August, September 1939, and then became Prime Minister in May 1940, he came to be extremely petulant and angry with any other democratic country at all who didn't see the German threat in precisely the same way that he saw it. I think there was a certain amount of personal distrust on his part for certain Irish leaders, and notably Mr de Valera, but above all, he simply could not see that any democratic country, any Western democratic country in particular, would not feel that they had to throw everything they possibly had, like himself, into the battle against Germany. And he took more or less the same attitude to Ireland as, for example, he took to Norway. He went along with the idea of helping the Finns in their battle against Russia in 1940, simply because he thought it would be a method of getting troops into place to bully the Norwegians to cut off the Swedish iron ore which was such an important part of the German war effort and he said at that time what these small democratic countries don't realize is that if we fail in the battle uh, then they are ruined as well so they've got to be compelled if they can't understand the necessity of su uh, to support us in the war against Germany and he felt that 
he had that kind of feeling in relation to Ireland all the more so because of his sentimental attachment to Ireland. Churchill was not a man for times of peace, but for the days of stress, and he seems to have gained in stature when the crisis was greatest. As a war prime minister, his aggressive qualities and resolve to win dominated, and could give a quality of impatience to his judgments and decisions. Ireland's neutrality from 1939 onwards, was a source of irritation to him. But would the Germans invade Ireland? And what might Churchill's Britain have done in the grim days of the summer of 1940? If uh, the British came to the conclusion that the Germans were going to invade Ireland, if they'd come seriously to that conclusion, I think they most emphatically would have invaded On the other hand, staff negotiations were opened in June and July 1940 between the Irish Army and the uh, British Army in the north for joint action in the the event of a German invasion. I'm quite sure they would have come in whether we in the south willed it or not. I would have thought at the beginning of the war if he'd been left to him, when he was first Lord of the Admiralty, I mean, before he was Prime Minister, if he'd been left to himself, he would have had a go. He'd have taken aggressive action. And uh, I think um, Sir John Maffey, uh, Lord um, Rugby, who was rep- British representative in Ireland, did an extraordinarily good job in, uh, in, in holding him back there. And, of course, the Cabinet on, uh, turned down any initiative that Churchill would have taken. I don't know, after he became Prime Minister and had all the responsibilities, including responsibilities for relations with America and all the rest... I would have doubt, even if left to himself, he would have ever taken such an action. But Patrick Cosgrave sees the position in a somewhat different way. Well, certainly when he raised the matter in the War Cabinet of A, preparing a force to be sighted in Ulster to go into the Republic of Ireland, or the, the uh, Commonwealth country of Ireland as it was at that time, in the event of German paratroop landings, uh, the, the war cabinet were completely and utterly opposed to him. I think rightly. I think that this was, as you, as you say, an impetuous and really rather silly judgment. But the difference between Churchill and his colleagues at the beginning of the Second World War was that he thought, to a large extent, and except when he was dealing with his own electorate, almost totally in military terms, to a much greater extent than did any of his colleagues. F.S. Oliver once observed in this of the First World War, that the difference between Churchill and Lloyd George on the one hand and all their political colleagues on the other was that they, those two men, were men of war and thought in war terms when the others were men of peace and couldn't actually close their eyes and visualise the landscape under war, visualise guns firing, planes dropping bombs, ships sinking one another, that sort of thing. And, of course, as First Lord of the Admiralty, one of his first concerns, perhaps his main concern, was to ensure the freedom of the Atlantic sea lanes. And given the the patrolling duties of the home fleet under Admiral Forbes at that time, the Irish ports looked to be a terribly important thing to him. Ireland did not abandon her neutrality and the country was not invaded. But the problem of a small neutral living beside a belligerent power remained. There was a conscription crisis in the early summer of 1941 when the threat of compulsory military service hung over the population of Northern Ireland. The protests from the South were strong and Churchill, though angry, drew back and did not press the conscription issue. The Japanese attack 
on the American fleet at Pearl Harbor on the 7th of December 1941 brought the United States into the Second World War. This added a new dimension to the problems facing a neutral Ireland. And we know that Churchill had some hopes that American influences would secure staging facilities in the South for the Allied forces. And again at this time, the hint of Irish unity was there, as in the curious telegram Churchill sent to de Valera the day after Pearl Harbour. Now is your chance, now or never, a nation once again, and very ready to meet you at any time. But neither sustained and sometimes irritating American diplomatic pressures, nor Mr. Churchill's advances, altered the situation. The nature of the war was changing, and by 1943-44, the problem of protecting the Atlantic sea routes was being overcome. And at all stages during the war, Ireland was an important source of supplies. The departments of agriculture, the of labour, and the army itself saw use in Ireland being neutral, as long as Ireland could continue to pour food and men into Britain. Churchill himself, as a naval man, tended to stress the ports. Uh, they were divided. Uh, on the whole, uh, the occupation of the ports did not turn out to, uh, to be necessary. If it had, Churchill would have had his way. On a human level, the issue of Irish neutrality took on almost the character of a conflict, perhaps better a sustained dialogue between Eamon de Valera and Winston Churchill. This verbal exchange reached something like a climax on VE Day 1945 when Churchill broadcast to the world his famous speech of victory. Uh, this was indeed a deadly moment in our life. And if it had not been for the loyalty and friendship of Northern Ireland, we should have come to... We should have been forced to come to close quarters with Mr de Valera or perish forever from the earth. However, with the restraint and poise to which I say a history will find few parallels, His Majesty's government never laid a violent hand upon them, though at times it would have been quite easy and quite natural. And we left the de Valera government to frolic with the German and later with the Japanese representatives to their heart's content. When I think of these days, I think also of other, of other episodes and persons, personalities. I think of Lieutenant Commander Esmond, VC, of Lance Corporal Keneally, VC, of Captain Fegan, VC, and other Irish heroes that I could easily recite. And then I must confess that uh, bitterness by Britain against the Irish race died in my heart. I can only pray that in years which I shall not see, the shame will be forgotten and the glories will endure 
and that the peoples of the British Isles, as of the British Commonwealth of Nations, will walk together in mutual comprehension and forgiveness. In another historic broadcast a few days later, Eamon de Valera made this reply. I know the answer that first springs to the lips of every man of Irish blood who heard or read that speech, no matter in what circumstances or in what part of the world he found himself. I know the reply I would have given a quarter of a century ago. But I have deliberately decided that this is not the reply I shall make tonight. I shall strive not to be guilty of adding any fuel to the flames of hatred and passion, which have continued to be fed, promise to burn up whatever is left by the war of decent human feeling in Europe. Allowances can be made for Mr. Churchill's statement, however unworthy, in the first flush of his victory. No such excuse can be found for me in this quieter atmosphere. There are, however, some things which it is my duty to say, some things which it is essential to say. I shall try to say them as dispassionately as I can. Mr. Churchill makes it clear that in certain circumstances he would have violated our neutrality and that he would justify his action by Britain's necessity. It seems strange to me that Mr. Churchill does not see that this, if accepted, would mean that Britain's necessity would become a moral code, and that when this necessity was sufficiently great, other people's rights were not to count. Churchill had had his greatest day. There was a quality of anticlimax about his post-war premiership. But it was perhaps a measure of his acceptance of a new political order that he received Mr de Valera with every sign of pleasure on the steps of Number 10 Downing Street in 1953. But how real was that reconciliation? There is no doubt that for the greater part of his career Churchill appeared to loathe de Valera. De Valera distrusted deeply Churchill, even in Churchill's better moments. And but it is interesting to note that on the 16th of September 1953, Churchill and de Valera did meet alone together for the first time since for, for over 50 years. I, if in fact, I don't know if de Valera ever did meet Churchill alone in 1921. But certainly they met, and Churchill said, I like this man. I gather they conversed about sweet nothings, and each of them recited verses to each other. This was, after all, in 1953, two years before Churchill was to leave government, and Churchill had already had two strokes. So how genuine the reconciliation was, well, that's another matter. Churchill was a man of empire, and for him Ireland should always have been a nation of brave men, patriotic, but with an ultimate loyalty to the crown. Home rule, Victoria crosses, and a sense of fellowship between Great Britain and Ireland were somehow fundamental to his thinking. He singularly failed to resolve the Irish problem, but to the end there existed for Winston Churchill 
a special relationship between the two islands and their peoples, a bond of family, a union of hearts, in which Britain would continue to play her leading role. Thank you.